Today we're with J. Paul Nadeau, commonly called Paul. He added the J for sophistication. <laughs> and he is the author of Take Control of Your Life, Rescue Yourself, and Live the Life You Deserve. How are you doing today, Paul? I am doing great, Eric. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm alive and I'm breathing and I'm talking to you. What else uh, could I ask for? It's always a good start. You have quite a fascinating background. You're... You spent many years in the police department. I did. For a career and retired, correct? Yes, correct. One thing that you did while you were there was you were a hostage negotiator. Yes. But I've spoken to a couple other hostage negotiators, and I found that that is actually, a, in their case, extra duties as assigned, not necessarily the entirety of their job. Would that be a fair statement? Yes, it would be. It's uh, it's an accurate statement. Uh, it's something that you're called upon to do when the situation arises. Uh, you know, given the fact that um, in addition to being available 24-7, there are two, for us anyways, in our uh, department, we had two uh, full training days a month to, to keep on top of negotiations. Okay. Now, one thing I'd love to explore, and I haven't with everyone yet, but I feel like there are fine lines. I'm very interested in communication. I've had guests who uh, study body language. Um, negotiation to me is another communication after all. And interrogation, I feel, could be seen as a form of negotiation. Would that fall true? Oh, 100%. Uh, Eric, uh, you know, you're one of the few people who identify that immediately. Uh, the principles of negotiation uh, are are the principles of interrogation. And it really is, you know, about uh, you hear some neg hostage negotiators and you've spoken to a couple of, uh, of brilliant ones. And uh, they talk about uh, the importance of building rapport. Uh, in the world of interrogations, it's no different. Uh, the important thing, and I, I've taught this to many people. When you're going to walk into an interrogation or a negotiation, the first thing you want to do is separate the individual from the event. What I mean by that is when I walked in to talk to a murderer, I wasn't walking in to talk to a murderer. I was walking into a person to speak to a person who had committed a murder. So I had to separate the event from the individual. And I walked in to talk to a human being. That's really interesting because I was just thinking of a, another guest I had, uh, Chase Hughes, and one of the things he determines is whether somebody is, in fact, lying or they are not lying. And one of the factors to show that they are is the person you're speaking to is often separating themselves from the action as they speak. Right. Yes. And they will say things like, rather than um, I didn't kill them, they'll say, I never hurt them. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, they... Uh it's funny, when you lie, uh, it's a process, you know, and it takes a lot of thought. But in, in, in the hands, uh, you know, of a skilled lie detector, and a good interrogator is a good lie detector, I ran the polygraph, and the polygraph is an instrument to, to determine truth or deception, but it's an instrument. 
the real lie detector is a person sitting across from the individual being interviewed or interrogated. Uh, there are certain things that liars will say normally, unless they are skilled, really skilled, and, and uh, it comes second nature to them, uh, you know, psychopaths, whatever. But the, the, the average individual who lies will say things in a certain way. I did not do that, or yes, or they'll minimize, you know, I did not hurt that person, or, you know, so it's minimalization that they use, and it's it's interesting, uh, and uh, Mark Bowden, I know that you've interviewed him, a mm-hmm. wonderful, uh, you know, body language uh, expert, and he and I have had many interesting conversations about uh, how the body breaks down uh, when an individual uh, lies, because we're not aware of it. But there are fight and flight indicators uh, when a person is is confronted with a stressful situation. And, you know, it, it may be closing up the body or in some cases, okay. you don't realize what you're doing. You could be picking lint from your shirt. And it's a way of saying in your mind, it's like, I got to get out of here. I really got to get out of here. I don't like this. And, <laughs> and the body is saying, hey, pick some lint. Oh, okay, I'll pick some lint. You know, this this occupies my time. I got to get out of here. And, you know, some people will troll their hair or other people will, uh, you know, touch their nose or whatever. And it's the body's way of saying, I got to really get out of here right now. And we can't control that. And oftentimes when a person is verbal, the same thing happens is that they use, uh, you know, uh, you'll ask a person a direct question. So, Eric, did you take that money? What money? I, I don't even have access to the money. I don't know what you're talking about. That's it. Why would I take the money? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's precisely it. What I asked you is a yes or no question. And if you have to take me down the garden path to answer a yes or no question, I'm very curious as to where you're taking me, my friend. I asked you, did you kill that person? And you say, well, why would I kill that person? I've never had a beef with that person. No, the question was, did you kill them? It's simple. Now, every politician, of course, does this and every... <laughs> interview on stage you got it <laughs> don't they eh? you know yeah. without fail <laughs> <laughs> that's so true so so are we dealing with liars uh, yeah i would say so you know it's, it's interesting so you, you would call those tells in the poker world too right you would yeah yeah you definitely would and it, you know it, it's interesting because as a as an interrogator or somebody who investigated crimes oftentimes when a person would come in they'd say okay i was robbed and one of the first things that I would do in many cases, if I was the investigator and not the interrogator, the investigator, is I would say, okay, here's a page or, or a pad and a pen. Write what happened down. And they would say, well, where do you want me to begin? At the beginning. Take as much mm. time as you want and go. So a story should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right. The beginning should be, you know, I was walking down the street one day in a merry, merry month of May when suddenly, you know, out of the blue, this guy, you know, comes up and he points a gun in my face and he says, I want all your money. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I gave him the money and then he fled and he left. And that's when the emotion comes. And then I felt, you know, terrible. So there's, there's a, a pattern to the average story. On that note, though, isn't that also something a liar will get caught up in, in the sense that let's say they're they claim that they got robbed at the ATM on the way home. They probably really have a gambling problem, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was robbed at the ATM, and you you ask them for a story, and they go, "Well, I, w- I slept in a little bit, and I was running a little late to work this morning." Yeah, and they go through the entire day, but really, any one of us who was a victim, we'd only go back like 
I got out of the car at the ATM. I could have sworn I saw something on the side, but I, I just wrote it off and I was out there getting the money. I, I was a little creeped out. I don't know what it was, but going all the way back in time, it's like, why all this extra history? That's right. So what you're looking at is a story that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end, or it has too much of a beginning, too little of a middle, and no ending at all. Do you know what I mean by that? The, the sure. setup is what you're telling me. They're going right back to their coffee in the morning. I didn't ask you about the coffee in the morning. I asked you about the robbery. You know, so, you know, they may say, listen, I, I left work and, you know, and you're looking for, you know, maybe a 30%, uh, you know, opening to the story. Um, maybe a, a 40 to 45% uh, middle, the, the actual event, the actual robbery. And then you're looking for a conclusion. And in the conclusion, you're looking for, uh, the emotion, you know, that's attached to it. That's usually when the fear comes out. And it's not an exact science, but it is a science. And, uh, a gentleman by the name of Avinom Sapir, he, uh, he created something called the scan process. And he's an Israeli lie detector himself. He's the one who taught this. And I, I, I took the course from him and it was fascinating just things that people say and he said listen the story will have a short beginning because they'll set it up it will have a bigger middle where the action is and then they'll have a conclusion where you will find the emotion and as i said once you get that story then you begin to uh, you you begin to pick it apart past tense present tense am i using you they, am I using, am I using the dirty language? And what I mean by the dirty language, he hit me, he blew, you know, like he, he slapped me, he, uh, he stabbed me as opposed to, oh, he placed me on the ground or, you know, uh, you, you know what I mean? You're looking for that dirty language, you know, like a, you don't get placed on the ground, you get thrown on the ground. Is that like, um, Jussie Smollett? <laughs> yeah. Oh, we, we tussled a little. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's funny you should mention that because when that, <laughs> when that first came out, uh, I remember watching, like, I hadn't heard the news about him, but I saw the interview, like, for about 30 or 40 seconds, and I turned around to whoever I was with, and I said, that guy's lying. And they said, <laughs> what do you mean? I said, no, no, it's just the way he said it. That guy's lying. And it was like two weeks later, whoa, he's been lying. The whole story was made up. And I thought, yep, told you. It, it, and it's it's funny because you you get cued in to these little indicators that somebody is not being truthful. Yeah, another thing, and – I, I keep bringing up previous guests because I like to throw them love too, but Absolutely. Um, Chase Hughes talks about asking the story in reverse. Yes. Oh, so now what happened? Okay. What happened before that again? Because it's very easy to rehearse a story and have it all lined up and all your ducks in the row, but it starts to get confusing when you have to say it backward. It really does. And that's a very good uh, technique uh, that we've used as detectives before, you know, like, okay, start from the end and work your way to the beginning. And you're right. If, if the person is lying, they'll forget uh, like lies are like uh, layers of an onion, you know, like you peel one and there's another one and you peel another one, another one. People don't remember the layers or don't remember how many layers there were if they're being deceptive. You know, if they're being truthful, they will tell you and they'll be able to do it from from reverse to the beginning. No problem. Because I happens. think you said that was especially effective with psychopaths. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've used it in, in that those situations as well. And it is because... Like I said, it flows off their tongue, but they don't remember it in, in precise sequence and they'll get upset with you or at least they'll show you that they're upset. Uh, you know, I told you everything. There's no need for me to go any further. You deal with this, you know. Now, how that brings us to another point, because 
Obviously, there's a very big concern about whether there's any kind of brutality or torture. You've been around the military, too. And I know Chase has already said that you're not going to get anything out of torturing people because, quite frankly, those tell you whatever you want to hear. Right. Um, How do you deal with that genuine high-pressure situation? And I think you've probably been in one where there's potentially a victim out there. You don't know if they're hurt, if they're not hurt. You're under the gun, you have somebody you suspect, and you really need to extract that information. A lot of it comes down to appealing to the person's goodwill, really, uh, you know, and, and uh, determining what is important to them on a case-by-case basis. And I've, I've never had that, that particular situation where somebody's life was an immediate risk and I had to do that. But y- you're right. If you, if you torture them, you're not likely to get the, uh, the information. And, and if you are, uh, you know, I mean, uh, okay, you know, like uh, if you save a life, then you'll have to determine, you know, whether or not you were right or wrong in doing so. But it does not work. And it all depends on how motivated the person sitting across from you is. You know, and uh, I, I know that some of the hostage negotiators you've spoken with have likely told you this, is that, uh, you know, if there's a, um, a hostage situation that happened at a spur of the moment, they got caught somewhere, they weren't able to execute their crime, something went wrong, they got locked up, then it's not as though they planned to take a hostage for business. It's like, hey, this is my business. I take you, you're a tourist, I take you hostage, we get a ransom, uh, or I'm a terrorist. I've got these hostages and I'm going to kill them at 5 p.m. You know, uh, those, you know, the, in the situation where it is a, a terrorist who has taken somebody or a goal oriented hostage taker who has taken somebody, mm-hmm. the fact that they're goal oriented, there's not much that you can do to change their mind. They're either going to be true to their, to their principles, to their craziness, or they're not. Whereas if emotion is... So how do you how do you approach that then? I mean, let, let's break that down because I, I don't want to leave that hanging out. Oh, there. no, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, if you're dealing with someone who is goal-oriented, then you're going to have to find out exactly what it is that they want and what you can work with. And I, in situations where I've dealt with a goal-oriented individual, I've always in, in some way said, I want to work with you. Can you give me an example? Tell me a story. Okay, sure. I was dealing with one guy. It abducted a student, and uh, what what he wanted to do was get a political message out. You know, so that was that was his motivation, a political message out. And when I got there, I had to determine what is it that you really want from this situation. What do you at the end of the day, and, and like any hostage negotiator that comes to a situation, one of the first questions we ask is, "How did we get here?" So what did he say? He said, "It, it it's nothing personal." He says, I have a message and I'm going to hurt this guy if, if I don't get that message out and I want a radio station. Okay. And what was your next step? My next step was to say, let's talk. Let's just talk. Why don't you tell me what your message is? Why don't you tell me what it is that you want to say? You know, there are certain things I can do, John, and certain things I can't do. One of the things that I want to make absolutely sure is that the two of you are okay. And the first thing I have to do to tell my boss is what it is that you want. You're recruiting him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You said you got to tell your boss. So you're kind of saying, hey, you're, you, you got to help me here, man. You do. You, yeah, you, precisely. You, you, you're, you're recruiting them. You, you've got to say, listen, and, and they'll say, well, I want to talk to your boss. You got to say, that's not the way it, it, it happens. You have a supervisor. I have a supervisor. I will give the information. I'm the one you're dealing with. 
Now, in the recruiting, is that an attempt to try to draw tactical empathy out of them somehow? Like, they obviously have a victim. Maybe they don't have much empathy towards the victim, but you can maybe extract a little empathy towards you? Oh, absolutely. You want to build that rapport, that bond. And I'm sure that you've been told this. We we go on on first name basis. My name is Paul. And now building the rapport, when you're dealing with a uh, with an interrogation or you're dealing with a business deal, you can take a little bit more time in the uh, rapport building phase that you can when there's a crisis negotiation or a hostage you know crisis. You don't really have time to talk about uh, the weather or anything else before you get down to business. You really have to get down to business first. What's going on? Tell me how I can help. Tell me how I can get you out of this situation. What can we do for each other? It really is that you shouldn't rush either, right? Never, ever, ever rush. One of the greatest gifts that a hostage negotiator and and even in the business world when you're negotiating, one of the greatest gifts you can have is time. There there was a New York, uh, and I I wish I could remember this guy's name back in the 70s. He was was a, a New York hostage negotiator, and apparently this guy was just magic. And he had done, uh, you know, hundreds of uh, hostage negotiations. And he was asked once, and I, I wish I could remember his name. He was asked, what is, what is the best message you can give to anybody who's going to be a uh, hostage negotiator? And he says, three things, time, time, and more time. And it really is nice. about, it really is about taking your time. Okay. So after you tried to recruit him for your boss, yeah, what did you say next or what did he say? Well, in that situation, uh, I, I, I had him vent. And uh, again, I think he was goal-oriented. When I look at it, he had a, a specific message. And uh, I just had him vent. Tell me what it is that you want to get out to the world. His, his political views, whatever he was going through, he needed to talk about. And I encouraged him to talk about that. That's one of the, uh, one of the most important things I think any negotiator can do is to get the individual that they're they're negotiating with or speaking with to tell them what their greatest fears are or their their anger is or what it is that they're holding inside and once you get them to vent they they actually get a little bit exhausted but what's important is everybody needs to feel validated and heard and sometimes it's just a matter that nobody's listening to me and nobody is listening to me so I'm going to make a statement nobody's listening to me and when you finally get somebody across from you who's listening to you, who's really listening to you, tell me what it is that you're feeling. How can we resolve this without going to the air? Can I, can I provide something? Let me provide something as opposed to can I? Let me, and, and this was a situation with him. Once he had vented, I said, let me propose something else. How about you write down what your political thoughts are, what your feelings are about this? And I will promise you that I will do everything within my power to get that message out. And that was okay for him, but it took a while. So I I started out by saying he was goal-oriented, but as it turns Mm -hmm. out, he really had a need to be heard. And in a lot of cases, Mm -hmm. that's what it comes down to, is listening to the other individual. It's like when you are um, arguing with a loved one, or, or you enter into a heated discussion with a loved one. The worst thing you can do is do all the talking. That's the worst thing you can do. The best thing you can, you can do is just to to encourage them to tell you how they're feeling and what message they want to tell you. That's the best thing you possibly can do. And then you you repeat what they say or you you empathize with the, what the, you understand. You don't have to agree with it, but you understand. 
And uh, so if I understand you correctly, this is how you're feeling. So you label the emotion, you label the, uh, you feel that you're not being heard. You feel that this is the emotion. If I get you correctly, Eric, what you're telling me is that you're feeling this way. And no, Paul, that's not it. Oh, I'm sorry. What is it then? Let me correct you. Hmm. But that's good because they're, they're saying, hey, you're really listening to me. You're actually listening to me. Nobody else has asked me that. Because we tend to wait for the next thing uh, that we want to say, and we really don't listen with the soul. And listening with the soul involves your eyes, your ears, you, you, your your mind and your heart. It really, it involves all your senses. And you really listen to what they're saying. And if you, and I did this interrogate in, in interrogations all the time, is when somebody told me something, I would always come back with, so if I understand you correctly, what you're really telling me is this. And they would have an opportunity to say, yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And they really appreciated that approach. And this is the labels, mirrors, and calibrated questions. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, oftentimes, um, when you're dealing with someone and they say, let's use a business negotiation, uh, for example, and somebody says, well, I really don't know. Your job would be to just use the last couple of words that they that they used. You really don't know. And that that encourages more more discussion. I really don't know, Paul. You really don't know? No, no, I have to run it by my board. By your board? Okay. You know, by your board? It's like by your board? And and then it's not like, Mm -hmm. oh, okay. You know, you say, okay, uh, fine, I understand. No, by your board? And that elicits more more information, doesn't it? It's like if you use the last – Yeah, we have a budget coming up this quarter, and I don't know if it will fall in. Right. Whatever. And that leads to wonderful, you know, uh, uh, dialogue. And and, uh, it is about exploratory dialogue, isn't it? Exploratory dialogue is exploring the wants, needs and wishes of the person that you're with, whether it be a hostage taker or a business person or a loved one. Exploratory dialogue is what leads to great conversation. And it is the why, who, what, you know, like, you know, why are you feeling that way? Or tell me more. It really is exploratory. So if I'm dealing with a hostage taker, what brought you here? You know, tell me more about that. Why don't you tell me your story? Everybody has a story. And I use this all the time. Is it tell me your story? I may not use those exact words, but really tell me what it is. And if the client is a little closed or a little nervous, you know yourself that people don't deal with you unless they know you, like you, and trust you. It's, 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 it's a very simple process. It's three things. Know you, sure. like you, trust you. And I can get to know you in five minutes. You and I have gotten to know each other. And we got, we got to know each other through uh, some correspondence, you know, over, um, over email. And uh, in a few minutes right before the podcast, we got to know each other. I think we're getting to like each other, you know, like, uh, and, and that naturally happens when, when, you know, the two of you are on, on the same page. And the trust is a result of that, knowing, liking, and trusting. And then you can ask for just about anything. And and this has happened so many times when I was dealing with, with criminals, interrogating them. The moment they knew me, liked me, and trusted me. And as I said, I walked in not to talk to the murderer. I walked in to talk to John, John the person. 
tell me about yourself, John. Uh, you know, where did you grow up? And, you know, I, I tried to find things in common that we would talk about. And I remember one case, the, uh, the hom- I was working polygraph and the homicide guys brought me uh, a, a gang member uh, that they suspected knew where a body had been hidden and who had killed this, uh, this rival gang member. And they said, we'd really like you to polygraph him. We want to see if he's lying because he's told us he knows nothing. And I said, okay. Mm. And so they brought him in and, uh, you know, polygraph here in Canada, it's not, uh, you're not obliged to take it. Uh, It's voluntary. But, you know, the homicide guys can really be a pain in the butt. They can they can harass the guy until the guy says yes, just to get rid of the homicide guys, because they'll show up at your work, they'll show up at your home, they'll show up wherever. So this guy reluctantly comes in and he comes in with the body language, right? He comes in and he, uh, he has his arms crossed and his, his legs crossed and he's looking away from me and he's doing something with his mouth, kind of like, uh, you know, spitting a little bit. He's not even looking at me. So uh, I walk up and I say, hey, my name's Paul. And I extend my hand out to him. And I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the polygraph examiner today. And I, you know, I'd just like to find out a little bit about you. And I left my hand out there for a good 30, 40 seconds. And he kept his arms crossed and he didn't say uh, anything, just didn't even look at me. And so I said, I understand. I get it. And so I sat down and one of the first things he says is, and he uses this, you know, and he says, I hate cops. And so I, I, I sat back for a moment and then I leaned in on him and I whispered, I said, you know what? I hate most of the guys I work with too. Some of them are real idiots. And that's mm-hmm. when he broke, he, he broke his stance and he kind of looked at me to give me a quick look to see if I, I was BSing him. And actually some of the guys I worked with, I didn't like. <laughs> so I wasn't uh, being that dishonest. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it was then that I never even approached. I gave him his rights to counsel. We have to do that here in Canada, give a person their right. rights to counsel, caution them, whatever they say could be used against them in court, that kind of stuff. Got all that. He says, yeah, 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 I know. He says, I still hate cops. And that's fine. I just started talking about everything, the weather, every. I happen to know from the investigators that he had two daughters that he was very proud of. And he was wow. a young guy. Yeah. That was a thing we had in common. So I happen to mention that I had two daughters and suddenly the body language loosened a little bit. We started talking about our girls and I said, Hey, do you happen to have any pictures with you? And of course he pulls out his cell phone. He starts looking at the pictures and we mm-hmm. sat for about 40 minutes. I'm not kidding, Eric, 40 minutes laughing and looking at the pictures and talking about we want our, what, uh, what we want our daughters to do when they grow up and that. And he's like, he's having a great time. His body language is all open. And he finally, at one point he stops and he says, and he's calling me by my first name. He says, Paul, what do you want to know? And I says, well, the guys out there want to know where the body is and who, who did it. And he says, Paul, can you promise me one thing? And I said, what is it? And he says, can you promise me that my name will never come out? And I said, I'll tell you what, give me one second. I'm going to leave this room. I'm going to talk to the homicide guys. I'm going to see if that's possible and I'll come in and I'll give you an answer. Mm-hmm. So I went out and they said, yep, confidential inform- informant will never give out his name. So I went back in and I said, Aaron, we can do that for you. I promise you. The guys promise you out there. Your never will, your name will never come out. He gives me the name. He gives me the location. Uh, the uh, detectives made an arrest afterwards. I never even have had to ask him about the event at all. It was all voluntary. Why? He knew me, liked me, and trusted me. Yeah, and the, the extra step of making sure you went out to ask, even if you knew the answer, I think was good. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Yeah, and it's it's all calculated, isn't it? It kind of is, and that's something that I did want to ask you earlier, too. You obviously have to compartmentalize a bit when you go in there because while you're trying to be understanding and establish rapport, you don't necessarily want to bring half of them home. Right, right. So 
I imagine you have to turn off part of you or try to skew your vision to not look at them in a manner of what they are. So you see them as a person who did blah, 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 versus they are that. Correct. That makes sense. No, no. And that's exactly what it is. I could like the person and dislike what they did. And that, you know, that often was the case. Like, uh, but we are all imperfect people living in an imperfect world. Nobody is, uh, is uh, you know, perfect and nobody is beyond uh, having done something that was wrong. And depending on who you talk to, what you've done wrong could be, you know, terribly uh, offensive to somebody, whereas somebody else will say, so what? Uh, you know, but when you're dealing with a murderer or a sex offender, what they did, you know, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of our, our morality is completely wrong. But let's look at the individual first and let's deal with the individual as a human being. Let's bring what they did afterwards and get them to confront it, get them to tell us about it and then get them to move on with their life. And it's amazing what you can do in a very short period of time to even get them to think differently about who they are. Some people out of, think, sorry, out of curiosity. No, don't worry. Yeah. Um, are there times that you may be the only person who has actually tried to connect with them in their life? Yeah. You wouldn't believe how many people have told me you're the first one to treat me with dignity and respect. And that's one of the first things that I would say when I would talk to uh, an individual is um, I had a spiel. I said, you know, my name's Paul. I'm uh, an investigator and uh, I'm only here. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to find you guilty of anything. I'm only here to determine what the truth is. In the next little while, I'll be I'll be talking with you and I'm going to treat you with dignity and respect. And I, I, I expect the same in return, John. You know, um, so. Again, let me repeat, I'm not here to judge you, not here to find you guilty of anything. I only want to find out what happened, John. And again, I'm going to treat you with dignity and respect. Now, let's talk. And then, you know, it wouldn't be about the event. Now, this kind of pivots into your book, Take Control of Your Life. Right. And just before we went on, you were starting to tell me that you were inspired to write this book because you were talking to victims of um, all kinds of crime. I'm guessing sex crimes are definitely predominant, but victims and some who became survivors and some who continue to be victims. And I'm going to throw a third in. You probably talked to some who became perpetrators. Yeah. 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 Now, what did you find was a um, common factor of each category? Well, you know, um, one of the greatest lessons that I learned in police work is that the person sitting across from me was more similar to me than they were different. So whatever fears uh, or concerns or happiness I went through, likely the person sitting across from me would go through the same thing. So if I was sexually assaulted, I would feel shame. Perhaps I would feel uh, dirty, a number of different things. So I I really had to place myself in the shoes of the victim. And I'm talking about sexual uh, crimes because I worked in the sexual crime unit for several years. So as an example, because they are more similar to me than they are different, we go through pretty much the same thing. One of the things that that I had to remind a lot of victims was is that – Deciding to be a victim or deciding to be a a survivor is really a choice. You know, it it really comes down to how you want to feel about yourself. 
when you are a victim of crime, it's not your fault. And, and people need to be reminded of that. It's not your fault. Yeah, but I, I had a dress on or, or, you know, I was at this party. That's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. It was the man. It was the guy. It was, it was the girl, whatever it was. It was them. It was not you. Let's get that straight. You did nothing wrong. Whether or not you choose to be a victim, and let me tell you, if you choose to be a victim, whatever decisions you make from here on in, your relationships from here on in will be deeply affected by how you feel about yourself because you will label yourself as a victim and you will not communicate uh, more freely. You will not explore more freely. You will not love completely and deeply. Whereas if you choose to be a survivor and you recognize that what you did, you did nothing wrong. And what you did, can did you see that? I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Did you find that the ones who chose to be a victim often wound up a repeat victim? I uh, no, I, I didn't. Um, okay. Most of the ones, and and I got I got to say that most of the ones that I that I gave this speech to chose the latter, chose to become survivors. As difficult as it was, nobody really left. You know, uh, there are a couple. And sometimes therapy, you know, like uh, there was a great deal of therapy that had to go into the victim because my words just weren't enough. Uh, but some of them, you know, like I, I bought two T-shirts, like I, I had these T-shirts made. One said victim, one said survivor. So when I got to know the victim well enough after about three, you know, three interviews, I would bring in these T-shirts knowing that it was probably the last time I'd see them until until court if if, if that happened. And, uh, you know, I'd bring in the T-shirts, one said victim, one said survivor, and I would ask them to make a choice right then and there, you know. And it's amazing <laughs> when you ask somebody to make a choice right then and there, it's amazing how you word it will mm. likely, if you become a victim, all these terrible, sad things will happen in your life. If you become a survivor, think of the power and control. You never lost that power and control. A lot of people think they lose the power and control. They don't. The power control is still within them. Uh, it's just that it's been misplaced. Somebody robbed mm. it temporarily. It's never gone. We can reclaim our power and control. You know, it's a choice. It's like, I choose to, to move forward despite my adversity. I remember a story of a man who was in a wheelchair who was approached by a little boy who asked him, how does it feel to be confined to that wheelchair, mister? And the man said, mm -hmm. oh, son. This wheelchair does not confine me. It liberates me. Hmm. And it really is how we look at things that happen to us. Sometimes, sometimes things do not happen to us. They happen for us. And we can be stronger. It's so funny. That reminds me of um, Steve Sims, a previous guest. His father always told him, nobody drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Oh, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that. And that's so true. If we choose, a lot of people think they need to be rescued. And I, I write that in the book. Me, you know, as a young boy, I was, uh, you know, I was brutalized by my father. Um, I was really a, uh, <laughs> I was really, a, I was a victim of, of terrible physical abuse from my father. And uh, I acted out in school. So I was a little, I was a little bugger. And, uh, and I felt at the time that uh, somebody's got to come and rescue me. But I realize that nobody's going to come and rescue you. If you're waiting for rescue, you may be waiting on a rock of solitude for a very long time, mister, because nobody's going to come and rescue you. The only person who's going to rescue you is you, because you've got everything within your tool bag to do it. 
You can change the way you look at things. You can get yourself out of whatever situation it is. You can choose to be a survivor, no matter what happens to you. It really is the hero's journey, isn't it? It really is. Because you take the hero's journey, the hero's reluctant, doesn't want to deal with it. If you're living in your victimhood, you don't want to deal with it. Right. Uh, hero often will have somebody who's a guide and maybe you provide that role as that initial guide by handing a t-shirt mm-hmm. and a good message. And then the hero has to fight and conquer whatever's before them. You're right. And isn't that what great movies are made out of? When you see a great movie of someone who's a victim who chooses to become a survivor and the steps that they take, that's a story worth telling the rest of the world. And everybody has their own story and everybody can be their own superheroes. The problem is a lot of people don't recognize the awesome power that they have of of changing their circumstances and changing their state of mind. And the moment they change their state of mind is the moment they change their world. You can choose to live in sadness and sorrow and live in the past. And I say there are three time zones, the past, the present, the future, the past, Five minutes ago, can't change that. Whatever happened five minutes ago, I cannot change that. That is there. The future, I cannot really predict. I can plan for it, but I can't predict it. What's going to happen two minutes from now may or may not happen. We could get blown up in the next two minutes. I don't know. What I have control over is this moment right now. My moment talking with you right now, Eric, is the most important moment in my life. This I have some control over. This I have a lot of control over. I get to be um, someone who communicates with another human being, who gets to express himself, who gets to have a relationship with someone. This is the moment I can control. Two minutes ago, can't change that. I can go back and apologize for it, but I should never live in the past. It's gone. Nothing we can do about it. Isn't that why terminally ill patients seem to have such clarity? I think it is. Because they literally have to be in the moment. There is no future. Yeah. The past is done. And so they are absolutely present, probably more than any of us. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a really, uh, that's a profound statement and it's very true. You know, you're looking back and you know that your time is limited. Live in the moment because the next five minutes may not be guaranteed, right? We're all terminal. We are. (laughs) Yes, we are. Yes, we are. months or days depending (laughs) that that's live every moment as though the next few moments are your last and and uh recently uh my brother-in-law suffered a uh, a very life-threatening condition and he's still in the hospital and he died for 12 minutes and uh the uh, good doctors and nurses uh, at the hospital were able to uh, bring him back and um he's making a remarkable recoveries, not out of the woods by any means. But one of the things that my sister has told us, her family, is it's amazing how uh, when he is responsive, how genuinely sweet he is right now, how much he tells us, how much he loves us. And this is not the character that the man expressed too much in the past. But in this moment, he's making sure that he, he lets everybody know how, how much he loves them. Wow, that's a fantastic message to close out on. Yeah. Now, on that, I mean, really inspirational note, 
Where can people find you? People can find me on the internet if you just, um, you know, type in uh, J. Paul Nadeau or Paul Nadeau, N-A-D-E-A-U. Uh, you can find a number of different links for me. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a website. It's uh, J as in John, Paul, P-A-U-L, Nadeau, N-A-D-E-A-U, dot com. So jpaulnadeau.com. And you can find me that way. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. And definitely look up the book because it comes up and down in price and you might be able to catch it on sale. But otherwise, I'll definitely put a link to it in the show notes. Thank you. I hope you do pick up the book. Uh, I've got a lot of good feedback from people who have suffered from depression and anxiety telling me how much it's uh, it's improved their circumstances in their lives. So uh, that's what I hope to do. Wonderful. And hey, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hi, I'm Susan C. Bennett, the original voice of Siri. Randall Kenneth Jones likes to talk, and he loves to listen. Over the past few years, more than 100 people, celebrities, newsmakers, thought leaders, rock stars, journalists, artists, humanitarians, and more, have chatted with Randy about the ups and downs and the ins and outs of a life well-lived. So if you like conversation, laughter, and thought, Jones.show is for you. Subscribe for free to Jones.show on iTunes, Google, or your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session.